Life begins at the moment of conception, and it is to be protected, as is marriage. It was not Adam and Steve. It was not Eve and Ethel. It was Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, until death separates them. And so God here is speaking not just to those who have failed, but to some of you who have never been married. You need to be able with authority to teach your children. And if you don't teach them, you know what they're going to get? The message of the world that is just the opposite. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three of Pastor Carl's sermon, A Marriage Made in Heaven. As Pastor Carl addresses the basic theology of marriage as a divine institution from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Please join us in Genesis chapter 2 as we continue. Our job as parents is to prioritize our relationship in this life, number one, with the living God, number two, with our spouse, and then with our children. And when that perspective is kept in order, we're in a position to teach our children how to live by God's principles. We need to teach them from the Word of God how to make godly decisions. We need to prepare them how to work hard. Kids know how to work a video screen. They don't know how to work a lawnmower. We need to teach them how to work hard, how to earn money, how to save it, how to tithe it, how to give it. Our goal is to help them someday to stand on their own two feet. And if you let them, as a parent, leave father and mother, when they get married, they'll come back to you as your best friends. Listen to your pastor. I meet couples. Sometimes we've been married 10, 15 years, and some of them are still going back to their parents. And, the, in, and in some of those cases, the parents have never let their kids go. The, the parents are controlling the strings in the marriage. Now, the Hebrew word here for leave, azab, is not a harsh word. It doesn't communicate abandonment, but it's a word that means to loosen something. It conveys the idea of freedom from something. And it's the thought that we are to set our children free. And so severing is not just a physical severing, but also a financial, a mental, uh, and emotional. It doesn't mean that your parents can't give you wise counsel. They might be able to, especially if they know Christ and some who don't know Christ just from life experience. But we need to recognize that as parents, our job is to work ourselves out of a job. You leave father and mother. Why? Because there's a higher relationship. The higher relationship is not the parent-child relationship. The higher relationship is the husband-wife relationship. You know, sometimes people say, well, we're going to start a family. And I think right off, they don't know what God says about the family. And by that, they mean we're going to have kids. No, your family started the day you stood at that marriage altar. All that happens when you have children is that that family grows and it enlarges. But again and, and again, you know, our, our job is to let those kids go let them rule their own family. I meet people who come in, they're asking me like these questions, you know, we thought this year we'd have our own Thanksgiving and mom and dad are putting pressure on us to come to their house. I said, well, why don't you have your own Thanksgiving? Why don't you tell dad and mom, this year we're gonna do our own thing. 
parents sometimes are controlling and pulling the strings when they need to let their children go and be free. And again, as you do that, they'll come back to you as great friends. You shouldn't always say, hey, why don't you do it like my dad did it? Why don't you do it like my mom did it? Maybe we need to say, honey, why don't you do it the way you want to do it? Because you're the homeworker here. There's a leaving. Secondly, there's the principle of cleaving. Cleaving. For this cause, a man shall be joined to his, shall leave his father and mother and cleave or be joined to his wife. The word cleave is a Greek word, excuse me, a Hebrew word that means to glue or to weld. And by the way, the counterpart in Greek means the same thing, to cling together, to unite. Job uses this particular Hebrew word, dabak, when he speaks of the skin that cleaves to his bones. Ezekiel uses the word dabak, cleave, when he speaks of the scales that cleave to a fish. And even King David uses it like the prophet Jeremiah to describe the tongue that cleaves or sticks or is glued, so to speak, to the roof of your mouth. But God's point here in Genesis 2 is that when two people get married, there's a bonding that takes place. And that's why in Malachi 2, God describes divorce as a violent act. But unfortunately, many couples enter into marriage without the thought that this thing is for keeps. You know, I had a couple in this past week, and they want me to marry them next December, and I can. There's no problem with that. And and so they do the preliminary forms that I, I've got to know in my heart, yeah, this is within the bounds of what I will do as a pastor and what we'll do as elders as a church, what we've agreed upon. And I said, so here's your first assignment. And I gave them a DVD to listen to and a divorce. You see, the first session I'm going to have, six one-hour sessions, they'll have about 15 to 20 hours of homework. And they sign a thing, if you're unwilling to come to the six appointments and do all the homework, I'm not going to marry you. So don't show up without homework done or I'm just not gonna marry you. I'm not in the marrying business. And so I said, the first topic is the permanency of marriage. See, I want them to be so convinced that divorce is never an option, that that's not God's ideal by any respect, that if you enter into the marriage, eh, if things don't work out, it will be till divorce do us part. A couple that walks in with that mentality is headed for trouble. Look, the people who get divorces and the people who don't, it's not that the people who don't don't have any problems. They all have problems. You bring two people together and the closest relationship of life, two sinners brought together, you're going to have problems. Paul affirms that in 1 Corinthians 7, 28. He says, if you get married, you will have trouble in this life. The difference is not problems, but whether or not we're willing to work through those problems God's way and with God's help and under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to leave, we are to cleave. And so you make that commitment at the marriage altar until death do us part or until Christ comes again, we're gonna stick together through thick and thin. Beyond the principle of leaving and cleaving, there's a third management principle. And there is the principle of becoming one. There is the principle of becoming one. Let's read now all of verse 24. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
when a person gets married, they enter into a one flesh relationship. Really, the scripture spells it out on three dimensions on a physical dimension, on a soulish dimension, and potentially on a spiritual level. Now, some look at this verse and they only think of it in terms of the physical. And certainly, verses like 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul can even say if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he's become one flesh with her. So certainly the physical is in view, but the Lord Jesus takes it far beyond that, as was intended in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, as God himself was married to Israel. And so in Matthew 19, the Lord Jesus quotes this verse from Genesis, and then he says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are a new, indivisible unit. You are, yes, one physically when you get married, and God has nothing against sex. He designed it. That's why gayness, homosexuality, Paul says it's against nature. God installed the plumbing. He thought it up from the beginning to end. And sex is not something that God is down on. He developed it. He's trying to protect it. So he tells us in Scripture, you shall not commit adultery. He says, flee fornication. He says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And when God gives us such commands, he's not trying to keep sex from us. He's trying to keep sex for us. He's trying to protect it, to preserve it. Don't you think it's weird that men in their 20s and 30s now need a pill to do what God intended for them to do naturally? Why is that? Because they have so distorted and perverted through porn and multiple relationships, God's plan for marriage. It's the most intimate of all relationships such that when the act is done, God can say, he knew his wife. And of course, not only is there enjoyment and intimacy, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And I know whenever I talk about having children, there's always infertile couples and my heart goes out to them. And I know God has a different plan for some who will never be able to have children in this life. But we live in a day when people, even Christian people, because their mind has been shaped more by the world rather than by the Word of God, that they view children as a hassle, as a bother, as a hindrance, rather than as a blessing and as a gift from God. Now, I know a lot of people think that children make a rich man poor, but the Bible would teach just the opposite. It makes a poor man richer. One of these days, I'm going to leave this world by death or by rapture, and I'm not going to take a thing with me. I brought nothing into the world. I'll take nothing out of it. But by the grace and mercy of God, because my children know and love Christ, I will meet them and be with them in heaven. Listen. I hope you have bought the ticket called eternal life. And if you're here today and you don't have that issue settled, you need to. But God calls us to have children, to be fruitful and multiply, to give us a godly offspring. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God makes us one, not just on a physical level, but a soulish level. God said it was not good for man to be alone. Why? Because he wanted Adam to have companionship and fellowship and friendship. And God designed the marriage to provide that. Look, the one I love more than anyone else in this world is the living God. He is my best friend. But my second best friend is Audrey. And my third best friends are my children. And that's how God designed it.
that your spouse should be your second best friend, not your guy that you go hunting with or the guy you golf with. Your wife and your kids. And yeah, if you got some time for some other things, wonderful. But the bond that God gives you is a bond of companionship that he wants to bless. And God has also potentially called you to be, to be one on a spiritual level. And that's the blessing of true Christian marriage where you have two people who are born again. And that's why God warns in 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has a believer with an unbeliever? Absolutely none. And we have people who come through our church and they're converted and their spouse isn't yet. And they don't have that. And, and then there are those Christians who naively, because they were such babes in Christ, thought they were marrying a Christian only to find out he or she was not. And then there are those who disobediently married an unbeliever, something that God tells us in both Testaments never, ever, ever to do. But if you're in that situation, that is not God's plan for your life. I remember one lady in our church, Hygon, years ago, she came from Turkey, found Christ as her Savior, and she thought, oh, my husband needs the Lord too. And I'm sure she thought it would just be weeks or months before John gave his life to Christ. I can't remember exactly. I think it was 10 or 12 years later in this church that he finally yielded his will. And then John said, what did I miss for all these years? We, we, we missed the intimacy of getting on our knees and uniting our heart and going to a throne of grace and interceding for others and for each other and for our kids and our grandkids. God wants to bond you together, not just physically, not just in terms of a companion, soulish kind of thing, suke, it refers to our mind, our will, and our emotions, but on a spiritual level. And so Paul says in Ephesians, so husbands, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. By the way, throw out this baloney that you need to be taught to love yourself. God's word says no one ever hated his own flesh. Why do you think people are so frantic fighting in Costco and in Walmart this week over the items on the shelf? Because they love themselves. Because they want that stuff for themselves. Don't tell me you have to learn to love yourself. That psychobabble that has entered into the church, no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it, he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul is saying, listen, husbands, you need to lead in nourishing and cherishing your wife. And no more real is the law of sowing and reaping than it is in a marriage relationship that what a man does to his wife, he does to himself. When he's kind to her, he's kind to himself. When he's mean to her, he's mean to himself. So do yourself a favor, love your wife, and you'll see all the benefits of it. One flesh. Two personalities brought together. They still have unique personalities, but two people brought together. And that's why, again, God says, I hate divorce because it's so painful. It tears two living people that God has joined. 
Not to mention, he will say what it's done to the children, and yet we live in a day we got more books, DVDs, CDs, podcasts, marriage conferences. The track record of evangelicals is no different from that of pagans. See, it's one thing to hear this stuff. It's another thing to really meditate on it and let it get deep into our heart, so deep that it's a part of us that we can teach it to our children and our grandchildren, and if necessary, to teach from our failure, but to live it because God wants to bless us. And look, some of you are here and you're doing it solo. That's okay. You just be faithful to God and he will honor what he has called you to do. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one. And then the favorite verse preached in evangelical churches in America, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Hmm. All right, third and finally, are you with me? Marriage is made by God the Father. Marriage is managed by God the Spirit. Just very quickly, marriage is marked by God the Son. Three brief observations and I'm done. First, I'm reminded that God made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. He made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. And in the New Testament, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his church. So when Paul again writes the Ephesians, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. For what purpose? So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. That's what you're supposed to do, dad, or husband. You're supposed to be loving your wife so that she's becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And if you would ever ask her to entertain a movie or listen to music or garbage that would tear her down, you're doing the exact opposite that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she would be holy and blameless. And so in Scripture, the Messiah, as God is with Israel in the Old Testament, Christ is viewed as the groom and we as believers as the bride. And what we find in Genesis 2 is really an illustration of this truth. When God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he took one of the ribs from his side. Sleep, as you know, is often a metaphor for death in Scripture. And Adam's sleep illustrates, among other things, the death of the Lord Jesus. And just as God took a rib from Adam's side, Christ was pierced through on his side, showing that he was dead and purchasing you with his precious blood. God made Eve out of Adam's wounded body. God built Eve. There's a whole sermon on that. I wish we could spend an hour on it. God built Eve to be Adam's bride, verse 22. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib from which he was taken from the man and brought her to the man. So God built this woman, literally, God built into a woman, Eve, to be Adam's bride. And right now God is building his church. He is fashioning his church. And one of these days, the last person who is going to be a member of the church will believe, could be in this church could be in some part of the world today, could be tomorrow, could be next week. The last man, the last woman, the last boy, the last girl will call upon Jesus in faith and God will say, son, your church is built, go retrieve her. And he will come and get his bride and we'll be caught up and transformed, 
will receive a body like Christ, having no spot or wrinkle. Third and finally, God designed Adam and Eve to be inseparably one. Eve was made from Adam, and God viewed them inseparably as one. And so the Bible repeatedly reminds us that when we get married, there's a joining that takes place. We already read, consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. In the same way when we become believers in Yeshua and Jesus, the Messiah, when we become a part of the bride of Christ, we're believers who are inseparably joined to him. We are members of his body. Remember what Paul said to the Ephesians, so husbands ought to love one another, their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Again, no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Why? Verse 30, because we are members of his body. You say, Pastor Carl, do you really think that was all pictured in the book of Genesis? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit tells us here in Ephesians, because we are members of his body. And then right after that, he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. And then Paul adds, the mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. It's a mystery, mysterion, you know the word. It is used in the New Testament to describe something that was once hidden and now has been revealed. The picture was once hidden, but it is now totally revealed in Jesus Christ in living color. He is building his church and he's going to complete it. We've witnessed in this last week worldwide panic. And in other nations of the world, as you read, some of the panic that has ensued doesn't even compare to what we have witnessed in the United States. And we have studied Revelation for three years. And we have noted that there's coming a day when Indeed, God is going to begin to judge the world with eschatological wrath. He is judging the world today. God is unhappy with this world. He is unhappy with our nation. I don't know where our president stands spiritually today, but I thank God that he said we should have a day of prayer. I thought, well, that's a novel idea. First politician I heard, maybe we should pray about this. but we can't pray and ask God to bless and protect our nation when we're raising our puny little fists in his face. We're hating Israel. God says, I'll curse those that will curse Israel. The nations of the world are going against Israel. We have legalized the murder of the innocent. We are killing old people. We're calling things that God calls a perversion good. They're calling preachers like me hobophobic. They're calling pastors like me because I won't affirm a transgender lifestyle as hateful. No, they are the hateful people because they are going against God's standard in helping to lead people into a place of eternal retribution. God is on his throne. No one knows what will happen. But this is very different from the Spanish flu in the first part of the 20th century. Israel is in the land, which must take place before the second coming. The Jews have been gathered from over 100 nations into the land of Israel. 
We have become like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, days of moral compromise and days of sexual perversion. And I can't help but think that God is just giving us a taste. This is nothing compared to what is coming in the tribulation. This is nothing. God is giving man a taste. And Jesus said, when these tragedies come, it's a reminder that people need to repent. Now, I don't know what your marriage is like today, but people ought to be able to look at your marriage and say, my, that's different from what I have. And that's a picture of Christ's love. And I don't know where you're at today, but I know today can be the first day of the rest of your life. And if you will submit to the authority of God's word and by his spirit, humble yourself and ask for his power, he'll help you. You say, I'm not even sure I'm saved. You better get that one figured out first. And I would have it nailed down before I left this building this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Wherever you are, you may be live streaming in a foreign country, in another state, on one of our campuses. I want to ask you this morning, do you know absolutely if this were your last day on earth that heaven is your home? The scripture promises that Christ Jesus receives sinful men. It is a trustworthy statement. It deserves your full acceptance. Paul wrote, Christ came into the world to save sinners. My friend, he loves you. He died for you. He was pierced through for your iniquity. He paid in full the debt that you owe God that would take you an eternity to pull off. And if you will humble yourself and come as a bankrupt person, acknowledging that your sin is wrong and it deserves judgment and it needs forgiveness and changing, if you will come to the cross, God will save you today. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late for you. All of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. Would you in faith say, Lord Jesus, by your death, burial, and resurrection, save me and change me. The scripture says, he that believes has eternal life. Now, Father, we are living in a day of panic. And it seems to be deepening and broadening. But I pray as the body of Christ that we would be reminded that you have not given us a spirit of fear. May we speak boldly, compassionately. May our words be seasoned with salt. May we even this week tell people of a Savior who has died. May the Great Commission in these days ahead not be chained by some virus but however we meet or whatever in format, may more men and women and boys and girls find Jesus as Lord. And may we as the church be changed and conformed to the image of Christ. And above all, may people see it in our homes and in our marriages. We ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ and in his name, amen. Regarding the hallowed institution of biblical marriage, Pastor Carl reminds us that marriage is made by God the Father, marriage is managed by God the Spirit, and marriage is marked by God the Son. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program MMH020. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.